So we're, we're delighted to be here together with you <clears throat> and to talk about the Dharma. I want to just mention something before I start to, we're going to do a little bit of a different format tonight as there are two of us. <clears throat> I'm going to start with a teaching just on the, um, the practice of mindfulness of breathing and um, then we're going to actually do the practice together and then Larry is going to take over and um, I'm going to watch with delight as he does to um, take your questions, whatever questions you have, whether it's about practice or um, about the Dharma or um, how we are as people of color in this uh, in this beautiful practice that uh, a man of color started 2,600 years, well, now it's 2,700 years ago, mm -hmm. I understand. It used to say 26, but now they've, they've just uncovered um, some relics from the Buddha's birthplace in Nepal, and uh, they believe it's 2,700 years since he was uh, alive, not 26. <clears throat> But I wanted first to just start with a moment of reflecting on Nelson Mandela's death, on his passing. And for me, it's, I've been reflecting on how um, fortunate I have been to live in this era where um, Mahatma Gandhi was just he was still alive, actually, when I was born, believe it or not. Um, that's how ancient I am. And um, then we've had uh, you know, these remarkable beings in the, the Kennedys and Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela that we are, have been fortunate enough to live in an era and witness this incredible kind of courage that it takes to um, identify one's principle, to understand one's value, and to understand one's values, both value and values, and to be willing, as he says, as he said in his... Um, in this amazing four-hour speech that he gave at his trial, where from the interviews I've listened to over the last week, he was very much aware of the fact that the probable outcome of that trial would be, as he said, his hanging. And so he, instead of giving testimony, he gave a four-hour speech and this is the end of that four-hour speech. Above all, we want equal political rights because without them, our disabilities will be permanent. I know this sounds revolutionary to the whites in this country because the majority of voters will be Africans. This makes the white man fear democracy. 
but this fear cannot be allowed to stand in the way of the only solution which will guarantee racial harmony and freedom for all. It is not true that the enfranchisement of all will result in racial domination. Political division based on color is entirely artificial, and when it disappears, so will the domination of one color group by another. The ANC has spent half a century fighting against racialism. When it triumphs, it will not change that policy. This then is what the ANC is fighting. Their struggle is a truly national one. It is a struggle of the African people inspired by their own suffering and their own experience. It is a struggle for the right to live. During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve, but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. I'm so inspired by that. The understanding that whatever practice we undertake, whether it's a practice such as we do here of meditation and um, wisdom and morality, that alone, or all of those practices combined with activism, combined with the um, desire to live completely for what we value, to live completely for full-bodiedly, wholeheartedly, and clearly with the understanding of what we want our um, contribution to be in this world and how what the, the quality of integrity that we wish to carry it forward with. And that is what our practice is. Our practice is hopefully infused with the understanding of our values, the understanding of what is really true and what is really important in this life. So that when we meditate, we're meditating not, so, not for ourselves alone, but because we understand very deeply our connection to every other being on this planet and in this universe. And understanding that connection, we understand very deeply that our practice then is for the benefit of every single being in this inextricable web into which we are interwoven with every other being and from which we cannot fall. And so what we do matters. How we live matters. How we speak matters. Because it, it will, every moment, 
in which we act changes everything. And we are constantly putting down the causes and conditions for our lives and for the lives of everybody with whom we are related. So that's how I'd like to just um, contextualize what we do here this evening and dedicate it to Mandipa, to dedicate it to Mr. Mandela uh, and the life that he led in not only um, the ideal of freedom for Africans, but in showing us all what a life of real integrity and um, dedication is like. Because that's what we are here to do also, is to build our own lives of integrity and dedication. So I wanted to um, just speak briefly about um, the practice we do here. And so I'm, I'm glad that I did that because I, just, I plan to do that because we have a couple of beginners. Um, so we usually start with um, mindfulness of the breath which is the basic foundation of, um, of meditation, is the willingness and the discipline to find a place in the body, literally in the body, where we can place our attention uh, for the purpose of uh, calming the body calming the mind, calming the, meditate, the, the, the emotions. Not so much because we just want to have a kind of superficial place of calm and composure, but because we recognize that the mind that is undisciplined, unconcentrated, and uh, scattered has no power. So we, we begin with this very simple practice of paying attention to the breath as a way of gathering our energy, gathering our mental energy, gathering our physical energy, and gathering our emotional body, our emotional energy, and placing it around this one object so that the power of the mind, the body, and the heart can um, be collected and used for insight, for clarity, and uh, for wisdom. And from this clarity and wisdom, what flows is uh, deep insight that begins to inform us about the, um, this worthy life, how to live this life that is worth living. And the beauty of that is that it means that every single one of us is worthy. That there is not one of us in this room who is intent on practicing 
who is not worthy of this practice, who is not worthy of finding a way into a a deep way of living that brings this value to ourselves and to the whole world. So these instructions on um, mindfulness of breath are seminal. And as a matter of fact, the Buddha talks about um, the seminal nature of this. And he says, this mindfulness of breathing is difficult, difficult to develop. It's difficult to develop a field in which only the minds of Buddhas and Buddha's sons and daughters are at home. It is no trivial matter, nor can it be cultivated by trivial persons. In proportion as continued attention is given to it, it becomes more peaceful and more subtle. So strong mindfulness and understanding are necessary. It is no trivial matter nor can it be cultivated by trivial persons, which is a, an acknowledgement of our intention to not be trivial. So essentially, the instructions in the basic texts are very simple. The instructions essentially tell us to uh, go to, well, in the Buddha's time, he said to, The meditator goes to the root of a tree or an empty hut or dwelling or to a forest and crosses his or her legs and puts, places mindfulness in front of them. Now the crossing of the legs we've kind of adapted in the West, so sitting on a chair is perfectly fine too. So he invites us to find a quiet place, a place where there'll be no distraction for for a time, and essentially establish this intention with the body. That's where we always start our practice, is we start with the body by placing ourselves, our bodies, in a posture that is worthy of meditation. So he tells us that the, uh, the posture should be erect, but relaxed. And so if we, as we are sitting, we can pay attention to what it feels like to actually be in this body and to be in the seated posture. We've already accomplished coming to a quiet place as we sit here with our colleagues, and we establish our intention together. We know that we are now in a place of quiet, a place of um, seclusion with each other. And we place mindfulness in front of us first in understanding the, the posture of the body. 
And then he essentially asks us, he invites us, to place the attention on that place in the body where we can notice the breath. This is the first, this is the entry into meditation. And usually, one can find the breath right at the upper lip or at the edge of the, 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 the tip of the nose, the tip of the nostrils. And what he asks is that we place the attention there and we don't allow the attention to even move into the body with the breath, but we actually place the attention right at the place where we can know the breath. And he uses a couple of similes. One is a simile of a gatekeeper. So in our modern society, we call it a doormat, the person a doormat or a doorwoman, right? But a gatekeeper. So it's someone who sits at the gate and simply sees the visitors as they come and go. That gatekeeper does not follow the visitors in, into or out of the town or the building, if we're talking about a doorman or a doorwoman, and, but actually just knows when those people are coming and going. Or he uses another simile, which for those of you who are carpenters, maybe were alive. He says, suppose there were a tree trunk placed on a level piece of ground and a person cut it with a saw. That person's mindfulness is established by the saw's teeth where they touch the tree trunk without giving attention to the saw's teeth as they approach and recede, though they are not unknown to the person as they do so. And that person manifests effort, carries out a task, and achieves an effect. As the saw's teeth so the in-breaths and the out-breaths. So we're paying attention to the breath right at the place where it enters and leaves, whether at the upper lip or at the nostrils. And I know sometimes we give instructions at the belly, but tonight I'm just going to really discuss these instructions at the nostrils. So we're not following the breath in, we're not following the breath out, but we're actually knowing the breath as it um, enters and leaves the body right there. Just as if you were looking at a, if you were sawing a piece of wood, you wouldn't be following the saw, but you'd be actually paying attention right where the saw contacts the wood. And in this way, the attention of the mind becomes gathered. And as we are paying attention more and more and, the, uh, and the, the scattered nature of the mind begins to recede and the energy begins to become collected, the mind becomes more powerful. And these instructions seem very simple and yet, they are incredibly profound because if you really reflect on it, what you'll realize is that most of the time we're not paying attention to where we are, but we're paying attention to whatever is arising 
and passing away and producing associations. So the mind is uh, picking up something from the thousands of pieces of sensory input that are coming into the body and mind. The mind picks one up and runs with it. And as it runs with it, it forgets where it is. And so this ability to collect the attention of the mind, place it on one object, and uh, put all of the force of our attention on that one object in this one moment, the mind begins to become trained. So what I'd like to do is to just spend a little bit of time um, actually practicing these ver- what appear to be these very simple instructions. And what you'll notice, as the Buddha said, is this is not, it's not a trivial practice done by trivial persons, and it's difficult. It's difficult to do. So we're not going to uh, fool you into thinking, for those of you who are beginners, into thinking, well, this should be really simple, and if you're not getting it, you know, there's something wrong with you. It's actually that it's a, it's a practice that is developed over time that d- actually becomes deeper and more subtle and more refined over doing it over and over and over and over again in a consistent and constant way. And so if there is a, an attempt to do this practice for the first time or you know, for, if you've not been doing it for very long, and you notice how the mind wanders and it goes here and there, that that's actually a good thing, that that's not a problem, because it's the first insight of insight meditation, that the mind wanders, that it's scattered, it jumps here and it jumps there. And so I'd like to invite you now to um, pay attention now to to the body, and its posture, and get into as comfortable a posture as you can. Don't try to overstretch or make your body do something that it's not comfortable doing. If you're sitting on a chair, to place your feet in front of you so that they're parallel. If you can allow your spine to be erect, but not overstretched or tense, so that there's a, there's, there, there's a, a kind of twin feeling of relaxation and ease and alertness at the same time. A kind of noble posture. And you'll notice that the sounds are coming and that they may even be grabbing your attention. And that's okay. It's not that you're ignoring them. It's that you know that they're there, but your primary object is the breath. And if the music or the sounds do carry you away, just notice that. And when the attention is ready, allow it to come back to the breath so that you're not forcing anything, you're not trying to make anything happen, but you're allowing what is here to be 
uh, foremost in your attention. And you can uh, notice their bodily sensations, their thoughts, their sounds, their emotions, their moods of the mind. All of these things are also happening. But we place our attention on the breath and we try to notice the breath, whether it's short or it's long, it's deep or it's shallow, it's rough or it's smooth. We know when it's any of the, it has any of those qualities so that we know I'm breathing a long breath, an in-breath and it's a long breath. I'm breathing an out-breath and it's a short breath or vice versa or however it is without trying to change it or make it some other way. We're learning how to be with what is in a profound way so that when we do get up from our chairs and where the action is needed, that our action can be appropriate because we understand what is true. So allow the attention now to just rest on the breath, whether it's an in-breath or an out-breath, knowing its beginning, its middle, and its end right there at the nostril. And again with the out-breath, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the out-breath. And for this practice, when the attention is called away and you notice that it's been gone, just bring it back to the breath, right here at the tip of the nostrils or the top of the upper lip. Just beginning again, no matter how many times the attention moves away, just coming back gently, kindly, without criticism or judgment. Just noticing is enough and coming back.
and he, this guy said, you know, previous to this training, I would have punched him in the face and gone for the jugular. But I decided to buy him a beer. <laughs> and the guy, you know, afterwards came up and apologized. So, so this is what, he, you know, of course that diffused a potential, you know, situation. But larger than that, this is the skill that this redeployed officer brings to an area of the world that so desperately needs this. What potential impact does he have? Our practice is simply noticing the internal impulse and not needing to act. Not needing to act to the irritation or the pleasure but to simply be with so that our inner truth towards freedom can reveal itself as to what the next step is. Noticing the impulse and not needing to act is such an evolved human condition. To be able to be in that still point. This is what the metaphor and the practice of the breath invites us into over and over again because we've been so conditioned to, to just respond without thinking, feeling, or knowing deeply. So I'm, I'm walking Gina's path back up. So, so how does it really, what's an example that of, of how it really affects the world? So I'm going to go back to Mr. Mandela. And um, uh, I think it was in February of 1990 is when he was released from 27 years of incarceration. And, it, and so then began the negotiations of whether it was going to um, transition into a democracy. And, and, and um, uh, it was... It was not just tense, but it was tenuous as to whether there was going to be a democracy. And in April of 1993, so there were, uh, Nelson Mandela was not the only leader of the ANC at the time. There was a, a man by the name of Chris Hani who um, actually represented the, um, uh, the younger generation, and he was the second in command, and they sort of um, uh, uh, tag-teamed in in leading this, these negotiations. And in April of 1993, Hani got assassinated by um, a right-wing Polish immigrant. And it almost threw the country into a racialized civil war that they had never seen before, because people were already polarized. And they caught the assassin because a white woman Afrikaner reported him. And it, was, it wasn't the clerk who went in front of the country to speak about the assassination. It was Mandela who um, um, said, you know, he acknowledged, I don't have his words in front of me, but he acknowledged the... Um, the incredible pain and grief that, that everybody was going through and that we cannot be distracted from what actually leads to freedom 
which is a government for the people, by the people, and of the people. And in one small paragraph, of which I hope you will read, he held the impulse of an entire nation not needing to act on that impulse. It's, it's such a profound practice that we bring. And um, it, it makes, you know, it can feel so, it can feel as minute as that, that point on the upper lip. But when you um, really feel uh, your own experience, you can feel how you affect your family and your friends around you. And it's like, it's, uh, Joanna Macy uses this beautiful term, widening circles these widening circles of stillness and peace in a world that so desperately needs it. Um, so what we do here is so connected to what we do out there. It's so important. And um, it's, you know, I'm just so grateful that we have these spaces that, that uh, New York Insight and and uh, you all have created. So we want to just open it up in terms of, you know, questions, uh, inquiries, you know, comments about your practice. Um, uh, your question, there, there are no insignificant questions. And um, where you're working in your practice can often help everyone in the room. You know, everybody, everybody is different, and yet we can, and this is where we can support and teach each other. So where, where is the rubber hitting the road for you? Where, where is your next step in, in mindfulness and, and kindness? So anything that would support your practice? I've been coming here for a few years but not very steadily. Uh, but I have been practicing at home and at work and anywhere else that I can fit in a few minutes of stillness. I feel like I would like to go on a retreat, but I'd like to know how do you prepare for something like that? Any words, <laughs> any words to, to get ready to get ready to go on a retreat? Well, actually, there are several people in this room who've just come back from either a six-week or three-month retreat. Um, any one of you want to answer that question? <laughs> I, know, I know people in this room that have just come back from a weekend, too. Yeah. Think about the word treat as opposed to re. It's a treat. It, you know, it's, it's so precious, that, a gift that we give ourselves, this, you know, this container. Because there's, you know, there's so many things pulling at us all the time. And, um, and sometimes there's a lot, there is some preparation, you know. You have to answer the questions from your friends, you know, why are you doing that? And, you know, um, you know, 
getting someone to water the plants and take care of the pets and you know all of that stuff and that means that the retreat actually begins before it actually begins the mindfulness begins now notice the intention that intention is goodness creating goodness in our lives it's it's really beautiful And you can start by um, just noticing whatever nervousness you have about the, the, whole, the thought. You know, what people love to say is, you don't read anything, you don't say anything, you don't do anything. Oh my God, how do you do that? And just notice how there's a tightness about um, wanting, about giving up our usual way of working, our usual way of living, our usual way of responding to life. Because at, when we come to meditation, that's really what we are, we're bringing our, all of our habits and sort of placing them on the altar and saying, allow me to transform what needs to be transformed. And then there's the opposite um, pull of the comfort of our habits. Right? Just wanting to like groove into those habits, even though we know where they're like not serving us. There's something that's so comfortable and homey about you know our old habits, and so you can start out just by seeing that, knowing that intention. The intention is to really shift something. So to go into a retreat is the beginning of that, because you're really saying. I'm willing to do something completely different than what I've been doing and see how that works out. And we never, the, one, the wonderful thing about retreats, we never know what they're going to be like, ever. Those of us who've been going for years and years and years, I've never had two retreats that are the same, ever. Um, first, there's a little plug that <clears throat> the latest issue of Shambhala Sun, right? Gina has a little piece in there of generosity that's really quite lovely. Thank you. So I wanted to make sure people heard that. But I actually, this occurred to me when you asked the question about retreat. I'm wondering, curious for both of you, as uh, folks who've lived in urban areas and so forth, I've been on lots of retreats. And on retreats, um, one of the things I find most difficult is, is walking meditation. And I, I remember reading, I remember a retreat once when you, Larry, talked a lot about walking meditation. I'm wondering what that practice would look like in an urban environment. I mean, I'm not going to go out in the you know, <laughs> street there and walk silently, but how do we incorporate walking meditation into a non-retreat environment, into our home practice? Mm -hmm. um, so I uh, used to work at San Francisco General Hospital um, in a clinic, and I would have so many clients back-to-back -back that I would forget to go to the bathroom. You know, so I'm, I'm serving all these people and I'm not taking care of myself, you know. And so I used to tell my coworkers, I will multitask anytime during the day, but do not interrupt me when I'm walking to the bathroom because that's when I'm doing my walking meditation. So it doesn't have to be that long. Um, and... At East Bay, it's, it's very like, like um, um, NYI in that we're in the middle of a downtown, 
And when we have day-longs or, or classes, we actually do do walking meditation on the sidewalk. And it's beautiful because, you know, you have this whole group just being so paced and, and, and um, mindful. And so one day I, I went across the street just to get a larger view. And, you know, everybody was rushing until they got to that block. <laughs> and the p- pedestrians, you know, maybe they were curious or, or weirded out, but they slowed down. The cars slowed down. And then at the end of the block, they speeded up. And so, you know, it, it begins to, you know, even that little impact of curiosity or, you know, you get, and the other thing is as an internal experience, if mindfulness is, is meeting and loving the moment for what it is, what is it like to, to meet the siren and the concrete and the smell of, of um, a tree that's blooming on the sidewalk? What is it like to love the moment of the urbanity that's our home? It's actually quite awesome. I was just going to say, and some people here were there, the Harlem sit, we walked up Lenox Avenue, um, and everybody, they were rushing into, um, I forgot, Jacobs to get some lunch, and they stopped while we walked by, and we got a lot of, it, you could really feel that the, the merit of our practice, the fruits of our practice were, you know, generate, but mm. the merits were going out to all beings. And the other thing was that Thich Nhat Hanh has this um, thing he says, I've arrived, I am home, in the here and in the now. And I use that sometime out in New York, if I'm rushing to be where I'm going to be and I'm way ahead of myself, if I could remember that, and not slow down because somebody will run over you, but just walk <laughs> and say, I have arrived, I am home, in the here and in the now. Just bring yourself back. It's really quite lovely. There, uh, there was a, I was looking at the show, uh, <coughs> Melissa Harris Perry, she had an author on, on her show on Saturday morning, and it woman from the East Bay Project, and they were talking about mental illness for young African-American males, and that in Oakland, there, there is, uh, there's shootings. Hmm. You know, young African-American males are just dying at an enormous rate, and sometimes, you know, you get inundated with all of this news, and Sometimes one, or at least I do, is my practice making a difference? Hmm. Um, that's my question. <laughs> what's your answer? Um, Seriously, what's your my answer? answer? Um, I think in, in I, I live in Brooklyn, and I think I'm making a difference in Brooklyn. In fact, I know I am. Hmm. You know? Um, so, what's the what's the source of your question? It's just painful to just. Uh, it's just painful to just 
have that be a constant for some people uh, in their community. Uh, I don't have an answer. I really don't. You know, it's I, it's it's painful. You know, um, and of course there was the shooting at you know this the, the local school and uh, mainstream media is all over the news, and yet mm -hmm. in Oakland yeah. there's no mention of it at all. Right. Uh, if there's no mention at all, it's uh, uh, it's not getting me the attention that it deserves. Blah, 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 blah. So it's painful uh, to just, uh, you know, just to hear that from time to time. For me, you know, so. How is it to just be with the pain? Pardon? How is it to just be with the pain? Oh, I don't hang out there too often. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I don't hang out there at all, you know, too much. So, um, I have to just check that out. So, I mean, I don't know. Uh, that's where I'm at right now. Uh, I'm not there. I, it, it was just this past Monday, and I'm bringing it up, you know, because Larry's from Oakland, and I'm sure he's aware of it. And it just seems that there's a segment in the community or in the country where it's that this Oakland is in such pain around that issue. You know, you have parents, you have children who are, you know, they walk to school and there's gunshots. They in school and there's gunshots, and and uh, uh, there they are in. Um, it's a constant for them. So I, I, I guess unfortunate that it's that way, you know. Um, and I don't have an answer for it. I mean, it's just, it's unfortunate. And I don't know if any of us have an answer. Um, in the way that will make the suffering go away. But seeing it is so important, as you say, because so many people don't see it. And that's the oppression, and that's the repression. And so for those of us who do see it, um, you know, this practice is not a passive one. It's not about seeing the pain and being okay with it and letting it overwhelm us or, or um, uh, be steamrollered by it. The awareness really invites us to what leads to creating less suffering in the world. And in, there is always that first noble truth. There is really, uh, at least in our lifetime, I have a feeling that there's always going to be racism and oppression and, and, and war and disparity. But that doesn't mean that our efforts are futile or useless. And, and so the, the practice invites us, so what can we do? And then those of us who do see, who are, are conscious, who are aware, what do we do with that awareness? Because the calling is to lead from that awareness. 
I mean, you can't change anything that we're not aware of. We cannot change anything. That's the, um, the power of mindfulness. And that's also the oppressive power of unconsciousness. And so those of us who are a little bit more aware of whatever circumstance it might be, it's actually our responsibility to create that transformation, that change. Thank you. Um, I've had this question for a while, just kind of in my mind, and then after the retreat we all were on, I was curious about it um, more. Uh, you know, we had regular, like, bi-weekly Brahma Vihara uh, guided instructions, um, and, you know, they also talked about forgiveness, and they also talked about gratitude, um, and I was curious, I don't know when, you know, the word forgiveness was invented um, and how and where it actually actually exists in the Dharma or if it, how or if it got in, incorporated later because it was, I'm just curious about that. Um, they read to us um, about gratitude and uh, spoke a bit more in terms of the word appreciation, but there were texts that they were reading from that referred to it. But I never knew if there was anything text-wise about forgiveness. Um, and my other question is, because in addition to the Brahma Viharas, I'm working forgiveness and gratitude so well, something that I've found really, really beneficial is the teachings of the near and far enemies. Um, and I was just curious if you had any... Um, anything you could offer in terms of kind of trying to access near and far en enemies or what that could look like or what we could look out for with regards to, well I guess, you know, the far enemies are probably obvious, but near enemies for forgiveness and gratitude. Um, yeah. So I just want to clarify something before you answer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Um, so for those of you who are new to this practice, Brahma Vihara <clears throat> is, a, is a Pali word, is a two Pali words actually. Um, Brahma means um, best or divine, and Vihara means abode or home. And so it's best home or divine home or divine abode or best abode. And there, it's a teaching that the Buddha gave about, um, it, it's sometimes it's, it's translated as the heavenly abodes, uh, about four states of mind that he said would um, lead us to heaven in this life. And they're loving kindness, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, or joy for the joy of others, and equanimity. So just so that um, you know what we're talking about when we, when we talk about it. And, and part of that practice, the practice of loving kindness is really um, we, one sets the causes and conditions for the cultivation of loving kindness through forgiveness um, in, a, in a kind of three-way uh, radiation. One is forgiving ourselves, and the other is asking forgiveness of things that we've done to harm others or hurt others, 
and then granting forgiveness to those who have hurt us. So I just wanted to clarify Julie's question for those of you who may not uh, know these teachings. And I would just give a, I would just tell you the, um, the, the quote that comes to mind most, mostly for me is the saying of the Buddha from the Dhammapada that hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the eternal law. So that to me, that's like that's the that's the basic teaching on forgiveness. That when we when hatred comes our way, that instead of returning it, returning that hatred, that we transform it in our own persons, and what comes back out is is kindness or or love, and that that is the deepest form of forgiveness. When we can actually um, see another human being. Uh, in the suffering that Larry was talking about, having some compassion for the fact that in our humanity we are all subject to this um, understanding or this deep visceral feeling of the imperfection that we're constantly having to work with, that life is always imperfect, no matter what we want, no matter how we want it, how badly we want it, everything comes up imperfectly. And so there's this suffering from that because we're, we're, we, we, we somehow acquire along the way, I haven't figured out how, but we do acquire along the way some idea that there is a perfection somewhere. <clears throat> and usually we turn to ourselves and say, we're not it. So that the compassion comes with kindness and and the compassion comes because we begin to understand very deeply uh, the quality of imperfection in this life. So, I love your, where you're going with your practice because I've actually never heard the, um, the near and the far opposites applied to gratitude and forgiveness. So what that indicates to me about your practice is that you're actually you're actually creatively expanding a template that has been offered to all of us. And, and really, the near and far opposites come from the Vasudhimaga. I'm not sure that actually they actually come from the original scriptures, which is not that important. It's what is useful. It's what is skillful. And you're finding a way of applying that skill and broadening it, which I think is a learning that all of, of us can do. And I just finished a weekend of gratitude practice at, at IMS and, and one of the things that we explored was um, of course the, f- of the, the far opposite of, of gratitude might be ingratitude or the inability to appreciate and so the greed, you know, what, of course I deserve it, the entitlement, the privilege might be um, uh, the far opposite of gratitude. but. The, the near opposite might be so much more subtle that you know how um, um, when, when, when uh, we receive something, how do we receive it? Do we receive it conditionally? Like, do, do I have to give something back to you if I receive something from you? Um, or is it an unconditional um, um, space that, that, wow, you know, I deserve and I thank you. Um, for forgiveness, um, 
um, you know, the, the, the far opposite, and I'm just thinking off the fly right now for, I'm just thinking about my own levels of forgiveness practice. I know that, that when I get caught in, in the conflict, I can pour gasoline on the fire and really inflame and that feels, you know, there's some self-righteousness that feels really good. I get caught in the, in the pleasant feelings. So that could be the, the far, the revenge, for example, as opposed to forgiveness. And the, and the near opposite of forgiveness is, is, you know, forgiveness is, and maybe we'll explore, because we're doing a weekend of forgiveness at the end of February at IMS, for those of you who want to start with a weekend retreat. <laughs> perfect, perfect, perfect. <laughs> but, um, you know, forgiveness is, is organic. It has the cycle to it. You don't just let go. You know, sometimes the injury, you know, even though we think we've let go of one portion, it comes up again. And, and there are layers of this onion that gets gets revealed and, and, to, and to give us kindness for the process of forgiveness. To be compassionate for ourselves that, that, you know, that it's going to be something revisited maybe more than we would like, but each time we visit it there may, there may be a little bit more ease. So the near opposite might be assuming that you go through it once and it's over with. Mm and you repress it, you know, or you deny it. And you put on that face that says, oh, it's okay, whatever, it's okay. But it's not really okay. So really, I'm just exploring this from my own sort of feelings in to invite you to explore. So what, does it, what do those near and far opposites mean to you? Because you're already, you know, sort of expanding your practice in that beautiful way. Thank you. I'd like to know how we can use our practice to help us with um, making large decisions that affect our life. Making large decisions. Or making decisions that, helping us with uh, making decisions that are significant in our lives. I know that sitting every day is good. <laughs> That's, good. That's <laughs> a good start. Today is very good too creating that space of openness, but um, are there any um, uh, specific techniques or practices that we can do to ponder the questions or the situations surrounding whatever our <clears throat> dilemma or problem is? Do you know what, do you, have you heard of the teachings on clear comprehension? Mm -mm. So there are four com clear comprehensions, which I'm probably gonna forget right now, but I'm gonna try to remember. It's clear comprehension of purpose, clear comprehension of suitability, clear comprehension of the domain of meditation, and clear comprehension of non-delusion. Ah. <laughs> so purpose, right? So when we're about to take an action or make a decision, I find these uh, questions really helpful. So purpose, what is the purpose of what I'm about to do? What is the intention behind it? And is it beneficial? And who will it hurt? And who will it help? And what, what are the ways in which I can 
look at the purpose for what which I'm acting and really see what benefits and what detriments will come from it so that we understand that very clearly. And then what is suitable? Is it suitable right now in this moment? So something that was suitable a week ago may not be suitable today. It may not be an appropriate response to what was to, to the the same response may have been appropriate a week ago or ten minutes ago, but is not appropriate now. So we're looking at how suitable uh, whatever we're going to do is to the experience or to the situation. What's the suitability? And um, the domain of meditation. Is, I've always been fascinated by that one teaching of the domain of meditation because we, we tend to think of meditation as something that we do on a cushion and that kind of prepares our minds to go out into the world and act. But in fact, meditation is a continuous state of mind. It's a way of actually being with life as it moves and shifts and changes from moment to moment to moment and it really does it really really does and it's something that we as we look more and more deeply and as we practice more and more deeply that becomes very self-evident and so the domain of meditation is really our whole life so that how how is our uh, state of mind affecting whatever decision we're making. Can we pay attention to what the feelings are in the body? Can we pay attention to the feelings that we're having as we're um, contemplating what we want to, the decision we want to make? Can we pay attention to the states of mind that are arising and passing away with each idea or thought? Can we pay attention to the whole 360 degrees of our situation? So it's not just a, so that our view becomes a really wide view. And are we acting according? So the non-delusion is to really understand, to look to see who is acting. Right? So this idea that there is this person named Tim who's actually making this decision is a delusion that actually what's happening is causes and conditions are being set down all the time and the consequences of those causes and conditions are also happening. So our decisions are based on all of the elements of our experience. Right? So we're hungry and we eat and we think, oh, I've made this decision to eat. But actually... We, the decision to eat came because there was some feeling in the stomach. There was some cause and condition that caused that decision to come forth. So we begin to look and see who, are we, how, how identified we are with this decision, how much we really believe that this is up to me, right? And this is going to happen to me and all of the ways in which we form a, an identity around this decision, can we instead really, in a, in a clear way, begin to understand all of the conditions that are happening in this situation and all of the um, conditions that are brought to bear on 
uh, on the on the experiences and on the situation, and really allow a kind of intuitive understanding of what needs to be done. So we bring everything. We bring our intelligence, our our cognitive intelligence. We bring our intuitive intelligence. We bring it, we bring bring our physical intelligence. We bring our emotional intelligence, and we all allow all of that to be the causes and conditions for the decision that makes itself. So that we're not kind of, you know, I'm the one who has to make this decision. But we roll back and in a way of understanding the purpose and the suitability and our meditative practice, our con- contemplative practice, and, um, and as clearly as we can, we pay attention to all of those elements of our experience and the decision gets made this way rather than from there. Thank you. That was very helpful. Beautiful. So um, it's, I just want to take a time check. It's 9.05. If you have a question that we haven't uh, come to, you can come up afterwards. We can talk about it. But I think we have to close. Do you want to do the dedication, Ryan? Thank you. Thank you. So can we thank Larry? Feeling the joy and the energy of the room. That sense of joy and camaraderie of connection is also a feeling of goodness. The goodness of our intentions in gathering to create more stillness in our lives but also to meet the wider world with a more kind heart and clear mind. How good is that? All of that goodness in this room we offer unconditionally to the liberation and happiness of ourselves, our loved ones, our close circle, people and beings we know and don't know, offering the benefit of our practice to all beings in all worlds and all directions. Thank you so much for your presence tonight. Just make, um, just say something before we break because, you know, we're often with you two together on this silent retreat and we were not able to speak and give our thanks. And I just, so many of us know how hard you guys have worked over the years to make spaces like this possible. And I express this to you mm. personally, but I just want to have witness to just how thankful I am for how much you've done for us and making the spaces 
safe and available for people of color. And so many of us come to this practice through you or have stayed because of you and have come along so far because of what we've done. So thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm going there. Go there. <laughs> so, thank you, Seb. Thank you, Seb. And that's a segue because it is not too soon to be mindful of who comes after Gina and Larry. Mm -hmm. Where does the leadership come from? <laughs> you know, you've, we've got to really reflect and, and percolate and create around this because it's not going to be created for us. <laughs> it's not going to be given to us because we think we deserve it. That's not the way it works. And so really, where is the lead? You know, I hate to be so cynical. <laughs> really. Go on, you know, brother. You know, okay, everybody is aging. Okay, so that's a real, that's a real, I'm, you can feel my energy around this. You know, okay, so I, I, I love our senior teachers, um, you know, Jack and Joseph and Sharon and, and Guy, and, and they're going to be, they're, they're aging, they're going to be gone, and there are lots of people following them that will take their place because the system has taken care of that. The system is not taking care of this, right? We have to take care of ourselves. And your cultivation of your practice is the primary source. So really, the invitation is there for us to create this future, you know, paying it forward in this way, through our practice, so that, what, what was I saying? So that we can lead from our awareness. Because if the leadership goes away when we go away, it, you know, a community is led by its leaders and teachers. If we don't have those leaders and teachers, you know, it begins to, the community begins to dissolve. So it's incumbent on us to think about how does the Dharma pay itself forward through, through development of our own practice so that leadership can emerge? So please hear that call. And, you know, it's, um, it's a deep place to, to consider, to practice, you know, because we, we all have to practice those long retreats in order to enter that space. So thank you so for... So you can start with a weekend. Yes. But end up with a three-month. Right. <laughs> or six or ten, three months. <laughs> so thank you for indulging us on that. <laughs> thank you, Larry. Mm. Be well and travel well. And if I don't see you b by, before next year, have a really safe... Uh, holiday season and a beautiful, beautiful new year. May you be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.